Welcome to the Gold Exchange with Keith Weiner, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Today's episode is part three of our Ask Keith Anything series. Make sure to follow our social media and subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on all our great content. Now, on to today's episode. Well, here we go. Hello again, everyone. My name is Dixon Buchanan. Welcome again to the Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm joined with Benjamin Nadelstein, my co-host for today's episode. And of course, we're here with the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner. This is part two of our AKA Ask Keith Anything series. To recap to anyone who might be new to this, this series or this episode, a couple of weeks ago, we sent out the invitation far and wide to all to everyone uh, in the Monetary Metals Network asking for questions for Keith. Uh, anything was fair game. Any, any question uh, was fine. We accepted all. Uh, any questions that were sent to us, uh, this, was, this was your chance to peer inside of, of Keith Wiener's brain and see uh, you know, everything that's in, in there, all the different uh, topics um, that, that we could cover. So we got tons of questions back um, from anything from uh, you know, current events, inflation, gold, monetary metals, and a bunch of random fun ones. So in this episode, we're actually going to really kind of pick up where we left off. At the end of last episode, we finished with questions around monetary metals and uh, monetary metals investments, investing in gold, precious metals. We're actually gonna start today's episode there. And just to give you a bit of a preview uh, of the roadmap that we're, that we're going on in this, in this episode. We'll start there. We'll work our way outwards from monetary metals into more broader investing-related questions. And uh, we'll also be uh, visiting uh, a favorite topic here. Uh, you may know it as digital gold, uh, but we'll also, we have a few questions about Bitcoin in today's episode. Keith hasn't written anything about Bitcoin. He has, he has zero thoughts on Bitcoin, so that should be, that should be fun. Get to talk about that a little bit. Uh, after a pit stop in Bitcoin Landia, we'll dive into banking, interest rate theory, um, some 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 more questions on kind of the U.S. Uh, banking system and and um, the history of banking in the United States. And that will be uh, so. From there, we'll we'll end with another series of random questions. Everything from commodities to Keith's favorite TV show to, yes, even more Lord of the Rings questions. So make sure to stick around to the end of the episode uh, to hear Keith's answers there. I just want to say before we begin, Keith has not seen these questions. This is raw, unfiltered access to, uh, to the man, the myth, the legend, Keith. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, so we're recording this as a video episode so everyone can share uh, in, in viewing Keith's uh, responses to these, to these questions in real time. So without any further ado, Ben, are you ready? So ready. Keith, are you ready? 
We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> the power is in our hands. Keith, you know, Ben and I, we have the easy job, which is we just ask the questions. We just lob the questions mm -hmm. to Keith. Keith has the hard job, which is to actually answer them. So, all right, here we go. Starting off with uh, more questions related to monetary metals, uh, investing, and gold. Keith, how many ounces of gold do you anticipate the average American would need to retire and live exclusively on the interest earned? And the question assumes another, no other sources of income. There's a follow-up, but I'll let, you, I'll let you answer that first. So it sounds like a, um, a lead into the concept of yield purchasing power. Not if I liquidate all my gold capital, how many groceries could I buy with it? But rather if I put it to productive work and get interest on it, how much gold capital would I need such that the interest on it um, was sufficient to pay my living costs. So this is kind of a problem of reverse engineering. So you start out and say, okay, well, how many dollars a year do you need? Because all your expenses are dollars. You know, you're assuming your house is paid off. Your house is paid off, right? I hope. I'm not the one asking you the question, but yeah. <laughs> whoever this, uh, uh, you know, reader or listener is, hopefully your house is paid off in retirement. So you don't have that expense, but you have, um, you know, property taxes, you have um, insurance and electric bills and grocery bills, and you have a car. Hopefully you don't have a car payment. You own the car outright. Um, you want to take a vacation once or twice a year. You want to, you know, visit your kids and, you know, you want to spoil your grandkids rotten. So you want to buy them lots of presents. Um, so, you know, what does that cost? I don't know, let's say to make the math easy, call that $100,000 a year. So um, $100,000 a year, uh, and let's assume a $2,000 gold price just to keep the math easy, it is 50 ounces of gold. So if you were earning 3% interest um, on your portfolio in monetary metals, so let's assume you had some blend of bonds, not very particularly overweight in the bonds, mostly leases, but let's say the blended rate was 3%, then uh, it's just one of those is over of questions that everybody doesn't remember. And to the extent they remember hated from um, you know, algebra class uh, in high school or universities, the case may be, um, how many ounces is it such that 3% is uh, 50 ounces? Right. Um, and the answer is something on the order of 1500 ounces. Right, so 1,500 ounces divided by, you know, th roughly 33, so 1,600 ounces, something like that. Which in dollar terms would be around 3 million if we're using that same, right. that same gold price, yeah. 3 million-ish. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, pretty, pretty simple formula there, but I, I, love, I love where this question is coming from because I think it's something that all of us uh, need to think more about. So there's a follow-up. There's a follow-up here. And an anecdote, if I may. So very, yeah, go ahead. Very early client who's still a client. So if he's listening this to this, I'm not going to call him out by name, obviously, but he knows who he is. Um, <laughs> you know, asked asked a similar question about okay, how much gold would I need to get um, uh, a kilo of interest a year? And so I, I immediately kind of redid the math and said, okay, so you're talking about 32 ounces of interest. And then he kind of said, well, you know, I think in, in metric kilos, and I just burst out laughing and I just said, man, you just made my day. 
I said, I don't know whether you're going to become a client or not, but I love that we're having <laughs> a debate over how we measure gold in metric versus imperial units versus with everybody else. We're having the debate as whether we're measuring it in ounces versus dollars. Right. So now it's kilos versus ounces. I love it. You made my day. Um, anyways, he, he became a client and uh, um, everything lived happily ever, ever, ever after. Nice. That's great. That's like the, the second level kind of question. Like they're already beyond, you're already beyond dollars versus gold. Now it's all right. Do we, do we denominate it in ounces versus, you know, grams? That's, that's what awesome. was that was like, oh man, that's some next generation shit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. So there's a follow-up here, which again, uh, an important follow-up to discuss, which is how do you see that number changing with the combination of increased useless ingredients? So that's, that's your term as, as it pertains to inflation and, and all the non-monetary forces that go into um, what just gets grouped into inflation as commonly understood. And negative interest rates. So if you could if you could briefly touch on how both of those forces might cause that number to change. So the second question first, and I'll break the second question into two halves. Is the interest rate in gold affected by the interest rate in dollars? And the answer is no, or at least that's my theory. Um, monetary metals were kind of in a very interesting and privileged position to conduct experiments in monetary science in the real world and get definitive answers. Um, and so uh, that'll be one of those questions that to either confirm my theory or, or prove it wrong. But I don't, I don't believe that that would be affected. However, as the interest rate falls, I've written tons about this. Essentially, every decrease in the interest rate is an increase in the subsidy to producers. Um, and so one can think of it as we're feeding the savers to the consumers. Socialism is always about consuming capital, not just consuming income, but consuming capital. So we're feeding the capital of the savers to the consumers in the form of consumer goods through the producers. And what we do is we take their savings because they're disenfranchised um, and we give a subsidy to the, uh, we being you know, the government and the Fed, not monetary metals. I wanna be really clear on that. Monetary metals <laughs> isn't subsidizing anybody in anything. Uh, as, as the Fed doing this. Um, and every time the interest rate goes down, it's an increase in the subsidy. So we get um, more plentiful consumer goods um, and um, you know, we create extra uh, capacity. So you know, industries are running uh, with a lot of uh, slack in the capacity and um, that tends to be a downward force in prices. So that would tend to mean you need less gold to um, achieve that lifestyle. However, the, all the useless ingredients which is when the government forces producers to add stuff to their products that consumers do not value. And usually, so I, I first thought of the concept when I'm thinking about they force gasoline manufacturers to add either MBTE or ethanol, depending on what time of year and where, where in the country you are. Um, and I thought that's a useless ingredient. And I was like, oh, that's actually the name I want to coin for this. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of ethanol, I think most people probably know that gasoline has that. And they probably have some awareness if you said to the average person, what do you think that costs? They'd probably be able to make a guess that's, you know, reasonable. But in most cases, people don't even know the useless ingredient is even there. 
uh, more, nor do they value it in any way. They just call it inflation, so-called. And then they say, well, which asset is going to go up with inflation? And the frustration is, well, the universe doesn't work that way. It doesn't provide you an asset that someone else will keep bidding on a higher the more the government makes goods more and more expensive and therefore less plentiful and therefore scarcer. So economics tells us if something is becoming scarcer, there's less of it. The way we're gonna ration consumption is by having a higher price. Um, there is not any particular magic asset that magically has the property that it goes up as the government keeps adding more and more uh, useless ingredients or mandating that producers, I should say, add more and more useless ingredients to their mm -hmm. goods. There is no asset that does that. Um, so uh, as useless ingredients are increasing, yeah, you're going to need more gold capital so that you can live on the on the interest on it. And that's just, um, you know, when the government does this. So, you know, so think about it. Imagine if you lived in the UK or Europe where they've systematically shut down all the forms of energy that can either be produced domestically or work. So shut down coal, shut down oil, shut down domestic production of natural gas and make themselves increasingly dependent on Vladimir Putin. Um, so that already drove prices up quite a bit even before uh, the war in Ukraine. Then Putin decides to go to war in Ukraine and suddenly the price of natural gas is whatever it is, 10 times what it had been previously. You know, the, the good is actually scarcer for real. Um, and so by making it scarcer for real, everybody's become poorer. And so, you know, if the question is, well, how do you avoid being poorer when everyone else is poorer? Work harder, work faster, um, you know, be the rare guy who beats the market and finds better investments. It's hard. And, but basically 99.9% .9 of people are actually made poorer as a result. And, um, you know, they're gonna have to eat less and they're gonna have to set the temperature, you know, thermostat in their house. Uh, you know, to a lower temperature in the winter um, because you know, the price of, of heating the house has gone up so much. And that just that just sucks and people need to lobby their government and say, stop doing this. Start mm -hmm. repealing some of these regulations that mandate these useless ingredients. Stop impoverishing us. Hmm. That's great. Or I was just gonna say, I'm sure it'd be tempting to, you know, you've got one, you've got one factor there that would you know, increase the number of ounces that you would need. And so you'd either need more capital or you need a higher interest rate. And you've got one that might decrease it. It'd, it'd be tempting to come away and say, oh, well, those two things will just balance themselves out. But I have a feeling that it's, as they say, more complicated than that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of like you toss a coin, you know, and then it lands on its edge. I mean, it can happen. <laughs> one in a million coin tosses or whatever i'm sure there's got to be a statistic actually come to rest on the edge uh, but it's not likely it's not likely yeah that's great okay go ahead ben all right keith so this is from evan from twitter how is monetary metals growth and what is the current bottlenecks is it supply demand or something else entirely growth has been since since the inception of this program it continues exponential um, so that we're, you know, we're adding clients, we're adding, um, uh, you know, gold to the program, we're adding deals, everything has been growing on an exponential trend. Um, obviously, uh, it's e relatively easy for early stage companies to grow exponentially, much harder for major corporations to grow exponentially. Um, 
And, uh, um, you know, so we're worried about being a major corporation when we get there. Um, but I think what's important to say is that in our vision, this is a very important thing um, and a very big opportunity. And um, we're doing something that uh, if we can scale, changes the world. So I, I often say that a good working definition of a gold standard, um, not a formal academic definition, so don't crucify me over this, but um, a good working definition is when anybody who wants to can deposit their gold and earn interest on it, then you have, you know, and all of the other things that you want in a gold standard will occur as consequences of that, including circulation of gold coins, including people will get their wages paid in gold. All those other things occur as a consequence of that. You have to be able to use gold to finance stuff. As long as it's sitting there on a shelf in a warehouse with somebody's name on it, and then that person finally gets sick and tired of waiting for the price to go up or it goes down or whatever, and then he sells it, and then basically moves to the next shelf and gets a new name tag uh, you know, pasted to it, then it's a dry asset. And that's one of my critiques of Bitcoin, doesn't financing any, doesn't finance anything, cannot finance anything. But if gold is financing things, then gold is actually moving in the economy. Um, that's the gold standard. And so the gold standard is when we scale up, when Monetary Metals becomes a big company, um, we're helping bring the world to the gold standard. Um, and I think this is a very big, uh, a very, very big business. Um, so um, exponential growth, very big endpoint. What does it look like between here and there? Well, my crystal ball is a little bit murky, but I see, what was that? Another movie from the 1980s, Rocky, when he fights Clubber Lang, which is played by Mr. T. And they say to Mr. T, what's your prediction for the fight? And he goes like face into the camera. He's like, pain. What's, it, what's my prediction for monetary metals? Growth. Um, <laughs> All right, that's my Mr. T impression. Oh, that's great. I, I see because we're helping, you know, we're helping savers get a return on their principal, which the banks no longer want to do, no longer can do. Um, and even if you could get 2% on your savings in the bank, the Fed has a target, uh, which is called price stability. So George Orwell would be looking down at this thing, guys, this one's supposed to be a how to guide. Um, but, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to create 2% debasement. And so even if you got 2%, which you can't, you wouldn't be getting, you'd be on a treadmill moving, walking at two, at two miles per hour while the treadmill is spooling back at two miles an hour, you're getting nowhere. So we're helping, um, we're helping savers and then we're helping finance businesses in a, in a, uh, smarter, simpler way. And, um, I think the market, uh, for what we're doing is big and we're creating it. So this is a new thing that didn't really exist before us. Um, and, um, uh, and you know, as I said, there's a purpose behind it. What was, it was two halves of the question. I think I addressed one half. Yeah, I think the, I think the question was, well, how is our growth, which I think we were saying is exponential. And then what were the you know, bottlenecks that we might perceive supply, demand, or- oh, bottlenecks. So we're kind of in an interesting place that there's not one single long pole. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe that's because of smart management to some degree, but I think there's a lot of things. There's supply and there's demand and there's staffing up and there's internal systems and processes and there's building the brand 
and there's developing the partnerships. It's a lot of things, each one of which um, there, there's internal friction that we have to reduce, uh, each one of which you know helps towards the goal and we have to move forward on all fronts. But I don't think there's a single thing that, hey, if we could chop that pole down, we'd suddenly uh, um, you know jump ahead. Great, great answer. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned that answer, something that actually ties into the next question, which is, you know, all these things, when it, when it comes to using gold as money, all these things kind of flow downward from the ability to earn a return on gold, paid in gold. And one of the things you mentioned was wages, earning wages in gold. So this next question asks, uh, this is from Twitter. Do you pay your employees and or contractors in gold? And if not, why not? So um, I just wrote an article, which I think will be published today or tomorrow. Uh, and you guys are the ones in control of that. Um, so I'm saying this on Monday, April 4, uh, depending on when this podcast is published. I just wrote an article about this narrative that Russia is demanding payment in rubles and it's backing the rubles with gold, it's backing the ruble. It's a petro ruble, it's backed with oil. You know, the US dollar is gonna lose its reserve status, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I address that issue of, when we talk about paid in, are we saying that the economic calculation is performed um, and that long-term contracts are set in terms of, or are we saying merely as a, mechanism for remittance. And so if I can um, uh, you know, give a spoiler to my own uh, article or a series of articles, uh, I talk about, imagine you're a homeowner and uh, for whatever reason, you've neglected the front lawn and so now it's eight inches tall and you, know, you have seed heads appearing or whatever, it's kind of getting ugly. And so some kid comes along and says, I'll offer to mow your lawn. And you say, well, how much do you want for it? And he says, I want one box which contains 16 ice cream sandwiches. So would you say that the price of a lawn mowing is a box of ice cream sandwiches? No, nobody would say that. What they would say is, what is a box of ice cream sandwiches worth? Oh, well, it's about eight bucks. Now we say, okay, what's the minimum wage uh, in your area? And let's assume you don't live in New York City or Sacramento or LA, it could be around eight bucks. So essentially, and I think let's assume it takes an hour to mow the lawn. He's essentially saying, oh, I want to get paid minimum wage. I'll use your, your, your lawnmower so it doesn't have any cost of fuel or equipment. I want to get paid minimum wage, which, you know, for a 14 year old kid, that could be pretty cool. Um, so the concept of where's the economic calculation performed? How is the price actually set and determined? versus what is used to remit. And those are two very different, should, should be treated as separate ideas or separate concepts. Certainly in the case of the ice cream sandwiches, that's, that's clear. Now in the article, I was talking about remitting payments and rubles to make that same point. But in the case of wages, there's a market for wages you know, in the US and in the world, and that is a dollar market. So what would happen if you said, okay, I'll commit to paying, instead of paying a uh, a $50,000 wage, I'll commit to paying um, whatever, 26 ounces. And then we sign a contract that's a five-year contract or something like that. Well, the problem is if the price of gold drops, I mean, if it drops 1%, I don't think anybody's gonna do anything about it. But let's say it drops 10% or 20%. Well, 
Now you have somebody who's being paid significantly below market. Now, depending on what kind of employee, if that employee is anywhere near the minimum wage, you could actually fall below the statutory minimum wage, which is illegal. Um, conversely, what if the price of gold were to double? You're now paying double the market wage, so the employee is going to be happy, um, but the employer is not going to be happy. And um, so it's one thing to say, if an employee wanted, would we remit the payment in gold, as in essentially do the, the employee uh, a courtesy service and buy the gold? Say, okay, we're going to pay you, um, uh, you know, $2,000 right now, but instead of paying $2,000 as a service, we'll buy an ounce of gold and give you the ounce of gold and put it in your monetary mills account or mail you a gold eagle or whatever it is we're going to do. Sure, you can do that. Um, but what's not possible in the market, in the world as it exists today. And this is one of those things that certainly in the gold community, this problem is rampant. But even outside the gold community, I can't tell you how many times I've been coaching an entrepreneur or mentoring an early stage company. You have to get in the discipline of understanding how the world exists today. What are the processes? What are the rules? How do things work? And whatever it is you want to do, you can take the world one step in whatever direction you want to go. But generally, if you try to jump more than one step, what happens is you just skip a step, you get out of sync with the world and it doesn't work. The way the world is today, the labor market is a dollar market. Um, it, it's that way for a lot of good reasons. It's cemented in place. And if you try to try to change it by doing something like that, you only and only end up hurting yourself. And there's an asymmetry to it because if the gold price goes down, the person's either going to demand a renegotiation or he's going to quit. Uh, you can't force, even if you had a five-year contract, you can't force somebody to work. Slavery was outlawed, you know, 100 and whatever to 70 years ago now, right? Um, and if the price goes up, then of course the employee will hold you to the contract. So essentially you've given, you've given a free option, you've given a call option on gold um, for, for what you haven't been uh, paid. So um, unfortunately it's a dollar world and um, you can try to change that, but you have to be very targeted on what kind of change you're trying to create and what kind of mechanism you're using, what vector you're using to push that change that you want to push. Other, otherwise you don't get any change at all. Otherwise, like how many companies have said, we're going to let, enable people to use gold as a means of payment to other you know, users of the system. And um, you know, I've spoken to a number of those CEOs over the years and I've always told them, you know, look, it's not going to work. Um, the problem isn't that everybody wants to pay out their gold and they simply don't have a technology platform that enables it. That isn't the problem. If that's the solution you're offering, well, you know, there's a lot of people that would be happy to be paid in gold. Um, very few people want to pay out gold. And, um, you know, anyway, so we, we can go deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole. But hmm. No, I think that's, I think that's really good. And I, I think we're going to, once we get to once we once we make that pit stop in Bitcoin Landia, I think we're going to revisit some of those themes. So, last question here as it relates to to monetary metals, and it's again related to this theme. So, uh, this is this is from uh, Twitter as well. Is it possible to get non gold related companies to be financed in gold? What are the challenges of doing this and the possible solutions? So we're, we're right back where you left off in this. The answer is yes. 
um, I don't know if they still have the video. So um, the Arizona House of Representatives formed something called the Ad Hoc Committee on Gold Bonds and invited me to be an honorary member, even though I'm not a legislator, I've never been elected to anything, um, nor do I think I would be electable even as dog catcher, let alone legislator. Um, but I may be a member of this and I gave some uh, presentations on how things would work. And one of them, I did touch on how we would finance a non-gold, uh, you know, financing uh, copper. Um, so I'm not gonna talk about too much. Yes, obviously there's significant challenges. I worked through the math and uh, uh, believe I proved that it, that it would work. And um, as we go forward, you know, I like to use the analogy of um, everyone knows, I think most people know that the first video game was developed by a company called Atari back in the early 1970s. Now, the first video game was not Pong. That was the second video game and the first one that became really popular. The first one was some sort of space, spaceship dogfight that, so the two players both had paddles and then you had a button to fire. And there was a star in the center of the screen and, you, and the star had gravity. And so you'd, you'd try to fly this way, but the gravity would slingshot you around. And then you'd fire your bullet and your bullet would also follow the you know, ballistics with the gravity and everything. It was complicated. So they put that game to trial it in a couple of bars and pizza places and it completely flopped. And the owners of the places that didn't work, nobody could figure it out, it's too complicated. They're used to pinball, you know, back at that time. So the, the, the feedback came back, we need the simplest possible game you can think of. And so what could be simpler than, you know, two, two paddles that some, you know, two players right. could a ball that goes back and forth. That was such a wild success. The first bar they put that in, um, Atari, you know, uh, the, the founders or whatever, the executives came back to that bar the next day and said, how did it do? And the bar, the bar owner said, it did good for a while, but then your machine broke. So they opened it up to look at it. What happened was they had a one gallon um, milk jug as the coin holder. And when that filled, the coins jammed all the way up the slot and into the coin slot. And so they said, oh, that's easy. We'll put in a five gallon pail <laughs> and then fix that problem. It was a runaway success. Anyways, the moral of the story being, don't start with too many complications on the, on the first iteration. Um, we're still at the point where the world uh, you know, needs to understand a gold bond financing, a gold uh, business. Um, later, we can use a gold bond to finance a non-gold business and the market, all markets do this. They get smarter and more sophisticated and they understand each new bell and whistle as it's introduced, um, but not, uh, not if you try to do it all up front. Great. All right, Keith, my turn. General questions on investing and precious metals. So should a person who is without income and is only living on savings consider buying gold? And I guess the kind of two-part question is, what would that right amount of gold be to own in a portfolio? Is it 5%? Some people say 25%. Is there a case for increasing one's exposure to gold right now? Well, second half of the question is the easy one. I don't think there is a right answer because it's going to depend on how big the portfolio is, how many months or years or decades that person has at their current burn rate before the portfolio is depleted, how old they are, how risk tolerant, are they unemployed at the moment as a matter of choice? In other words, are they highly employable as 
a software developer in a hot field like AI or data science, and they just choose to be uh, bumming on the beach for a few months, or they're really kind of down and out and not realistically looking at ever regaining their previous income. There's so many questions that um, not only couldn't I give financial advice for a lot of reasons anyways, on top of it, there was no one answer uh, to something like that. Um, but I think, and I guess I, that kind of answers the first half too. Well, it depends on like how big is the portfolio? Um, you know, how long are you planning to be unemployed? Again, are you in a great position that you're just taking off a few months of hiatus to recharge your batteries? Or are you anticipating a long slog of being unemployed? Or if you go back to work, you're gonna you know, decimate your income. Those are some of the considerations. Um, I, I don't generally encourage, um, I guess I'll say two things. One, if somebody doesn't have any gold, I do generally encourage everybody should own some, um, regardless of price, because there's crazy risks out there and they're all what they call fat tail, you know, low probability, black swan, but if they occur, boy, are they bad. Um, so for example, in Cyprus, the banking system collapsed one day. I mean, you know, it took a long time to lead up to that, but one day basically you couldn't get your euros out of the Cyprus bank anymore. And the purpose for owning gold, if you had bought gold before that, wasn't so that the price would go up. And if I recall at the time, the price did not go up in euro terms. However, the gold was still money good and the bank account was now frozen and you could only get hundred euros a week. I don't remember what it was, but it had very strong capital control. So if you wanted to get off the island and get to the mainstream where you could get a job um, and all you had was euros locked in a Cyprus bank, you might've been screwed. If you had gold, I'm sure giving a little bit of gold to the captain of whatever boat, you would have had no problem getting off the island. So um, I think everybody should have some, but beyond that, uh, I don't necessarily recommend buying gold as a speculation that its price in dollars will go up. Um, so if you're unemployed and you have a portfolio, I guess if you're trading it, you're gonna have your charts and you're gonna have your guides to trading. We obviously publish a basis that we can talk about when we think the price move has been driven by lots of speculation is likely to pull back versus when we think the fundamentals are strong. You know, you can trade it. I don't necessarily make a strong recommendation for doing that, um, but it's really, your mileage may vary, you know, based on your circumstances. Very good. All right, uh, here's one about silver. A uh, bit of a long one, so bear with me. Okay, this comes from Scott from uh, in, re in reply to our newsletter. Buying silver coins and holding them physically seemed like a great idea for years. Seemed like a great idea for years. However, when I prepare to sell, it seems there are extraordinary costs, often beyond the value or effort, uh, often beyond the value of the effort or beyond the appreciated spot price. Physical silver seems relatively easy to buy, but impossible to sell. But I still think silver coins are the best way to hold silver. Can you explain in economic terms what is happening in the silver market and what is the remedy? I, I take it in this question that he is referring to the astronomical premium costs that have occurred in silver and Aren't, don't look like they're going away anytime soon. So maybe you could you so, could speak to that. 
I can touch on, I'm certainly, it's funny, I've even seen some silver dealers talking about this on Twitter, that there are some who just, you know, charge an arm and a leg to their customers. They, they sell the silver scarcity story and um, they just charge above market prices for it. And so the silver price would have to go up. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you overpaid $10 for that coin, the price of silver has to go up 10 bucks just for you to keep even. So if that happened, then all I can say is I'm sorry that um, that, that happened. And, you know, uh, I, start, I, and again, I, see, I mean, we're not really in that business, but I do see silver dealers on Twitter tweeting about this. Um, so if that happened, then that's one thing. Um, but in economic terms, so just leaving that aside, assuming that's not the case, in economic terms, what we're dealing with is bid ask spread or bid offer spread. When you buy it, you're paying the offer price. Uh, assuming that you were to turn right back around before the silver price has had a chance to move even one penny and sell it, you're selling it for the bid price. The spread between the two is the measure of, of what loss you will take to get in and trade in and out of the, out of the good in this case. The, uh, he didn't say, was it silver eagles? He didn't say what kind of coin it was. Yeah, um, he just said silver coins. He didn't, I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's eagles, maples, fills. That I think they're all having the same problems. But yeah, right. go ahead. I think, I think the eagles maybe the last I had seen maybe the eagles are worse, at least in terms of. So actually, there's premium and then there's spread. So the coin is worth more than spot, uh, generally. And right now, I think the premium is at a pretty high point. Um, other times, the premium can come down quite a bit. So it also there's a cycle in where the premium goes. So if you bought at a time when uh, there was kind of a silver mania on. Um, and then you want to sell when silver is in the doldrums. Um, you could lose a lot, even though the bid ask spread may not be that wide. Not only are you losing the spread, but you're also losing the premium goes up and down in some sort of cycle like that. Um, right now, I think the premium is actually pretty high. So if you're trying to sell right now, you shouldn't have that problem. But there is a bid ask spread. Uh, so one thing I can say is that um, we're not really in the business of dealing in coins. However, um, unlike, you know, other dealers who are going to say, okay, we'll buy that coin. We'll give you a premium for it right now. And then they're giving you dollars. So you're out of silver, which isn't necessarily want. what you, what you wanted was to capture the premium in your coin and get out of the coin and into something like a, a bigger bar, uh, assuming you have enough coins that would be worth it. Um, that's what you wanted. So other dealers are right now advertising that they'll pay you dollars for it, which isn't what you want. Monetary metals is in the position of saying, if you want to sell us silver coins right now, we can um, trade that for uh, silver account balance um, and that there's a net gain in ounces. Um, and now, now is a pretty good time for doing that um, for whatever that may be worth. So you have bid-ask spread, you have um, a premium, which is on a cycle. And then you may, in some cases, have excessively wide bid-ask spreads. But overall, this is a problem. And earlier, the question was about wages paid in gold. If wages were to be paid in silver, and if paying wages in silver meant counting out coins the way a paymaster used to do, you know, 100 plus years ago, um, silver would be completely and totally unusable because that cycle in the premium is very vague. Like, you know, so, so the issue is in the case of um, silver coins, or any retail silver product, especially ones that are minted, the capacity, so the equipment that mints it is expensive. And so the uh, companies that do this don't 
want to overinvest. I don't want to borrow too much. Um, you know, so just accommodate the peak demand and then leave the equipment idle during uh, during other periods. Um, so the capacity for manufacturing the blanks, I mean, you can stamp anything you want on it and stamping is easy. All you need is a press and a die, right? So for a couple thousand dollars, you can get any die you want and a press is just a lot of weight and a, you know, uh, uh, hydraulics or even this with a lever. But um, manufacturing the blanks is, is a big deal and it's kind of expensive. So when retail demand goes up, then the capacity to provide the product to meet that demand is inelastic. And so what you get is widening, uh, you know, that premium is going up and up and up relative to if you can buy bigger bars. Um, so for some people, if you're in a position, buy the bigger bars. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're aware of a company um, that is buying the thousand ounce bars and then cutting them down into smaller chunks, which they put their own hallmark on and then sell them. Um, and so you can get closer to the price. Obviously, they have to charge some sort of markup for what they do, but you can get much closer to the price of a thousand ounce bar versus the price of uh, the one ounce eagle, which is, you know, can be fifteen dollars over over spot right now. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, no, that's really good. I think just just to piggyback on that a little bit, I think what what confuses people sometimes is that there's really two markets here. There's the spot silver market and you have, you know, bid and offer and spot silver. And then you have these, you know, micro markets, if you will, that form around each of these coins, whether it's the American Eagle, the silver Philharmonic, the Canadian Maple Leaf, and, and you have bid and offer in those coins. And of, and of course the demand for those coins while of course it's demand for silver, it, it's it's not necessarily that the demand for silver eagles is driving the silver spot market or reverse. It's 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 almost this mini market that's in, that's part of the broader silver market. Because um, right. because what you hear is a lot of people saying, well, there's no, I can't, you know, I can't get any silver. The price is, you know, forty dollars to buy a silver eagle, but the spot price is twenty. Something doesn't smell right here. What's going on? Um, it's, it's the other way around. The the the, um, the global bullion market will drive the price, the base price of the coin, and then the coin has its own premium. But you're right; it's very hard to drive the overall global bullion market, which is much bigger than the coin market. And so, I I wrote an article many years ago likening it to, yes, it's true you're drawing demand from the global bullion market through eagles. However, you have a giant lake of silver in the uh, global market and you're trying to drink through a straw which is the you know the eagle market or the maple market and yes you are pulling water out of the lake that is true at what rate and how much you know difference does that make right it's real demand it's you know don't don't hear what we're not saying it is real demand but you know what impact are you having right when you, when you measure some the folks there's some folks that are more arbitrage oriented so there's some folks that are absolutely inclined. They want to go out and buy silver eagles until they talk to their dealer and they find out that the spot price is $25. However, the price on the eagle is 40. And then they make a decision to say, I'm going to arbitrage, which is I'm not going to buy eagles, even though I thought eagles would be a better form of holding the, uh, the silver because it's very recognizable. If there were to be a post-apocalyptic economy, you, know, you will not have a problem passing off eagles because everybody recognizes them. 
there's, there, are, there are some real advantages to the government minted coin that the bar doesn't have. However, at $40, there are a lot of people who say, yeah, there's an advantage, but it's not a $15 advantage. It's only a $5 I would pay, but not 15. Right. And then they will switch and buy kilo bars, 100 ounce bars, 1,000 ounce bars, whatever. And so as the premium goes up, yes, it will shunt other people to go buy the bigger bars to some limited amount. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, the, the buying through the, through the limited capa manufacturing capacity in the coin market is a pretty slim straw. Right. Hopefully, Scott, uh, you'll find that answer helpful. All right, Ben. All right. So this is from our newsletter. So Keith, I know you don't give much weight to the silver and gold manipulation on the COMEX and the LBMA. I respect that. But there sure seems to be some odd, predictable ways that the price moves every so often. Is there any situation where Keith raises his eyebrows and thinks, this is odd? Please elaborate either way. Sure, um, and I'll give a, a pithy, perhaps sarcastic answer, but I raise my eyebrows at anyone who says there's a predictable pattern that could be traded. Mm -hmm. Because if there truly were a predictable pattern that truly could be traded, somebody would be trading it and then that would, just, that would end the pattern. So, right, okay, right. you know, the theory is if you buy at the end of at the close and you sell on the open or all these kinds of things, that were really true, right? So there's a lot of people who can do a lot of very sophisticated math uh, in terms of setting up hedge funds, much more sophisticated than the basic statistic to see if it were true that you could buy on the close and sell on the open and make money. And remember, you have um, you know, brokerage fees potentially, depending on what you're trading, commissions, bid-ask spread, and everything else. If that were really true, then somebody would be doing it and that person would be scaling it up and other people would be doing it and they'd be scaling it up. There'd be so much buying on the uh, close and so much selling on the open that whatever uh, spread there was to be made would be compressed into something so small that the marginal hedge fund would walk away from it. And generally, that means in modern markets, with the cost of credit being so dirt cheap, when you know when you get to that point where it isn't worth that anymore to the marginal hedge fund or to the marginal bank, the spread is so small that to the naked eye, as a as a you know, casual you know retail investor, you wouldn't even see it. Like the basis spread. You know, if you plot a picture of the gold price in the futures market and overlaid that on the gold price, and I don't think we even, we have 60 some odd graphs on our site. I don't think we actually published this. Show the gold price in the spot market overlaid with the gold price in the futures market. I don't think we even published it because the difference is so small, it would look like two lines, one on top of the other. You couldn't see it. You need a more sensitive instrument. It's like, you know, human hair has all kinds of, barbs and scales and all kinds of things on it, but you need an electron microscope to zoom in, right? It's, it's the same thing with something like that. So I raise my eyebrow when someone says that that's a predictable pattern. I would say, you know, anybody who saw that pattern would be making a killing on it rather than complaining on the internet. But if it's so easy, everyone would be doing it. Or, or so it would only take one person, right? With enough scale. And he would just arbitrage that gap right out. And then the market would go back to, you know, so the market looks like uh, a random stochastic signal. Anybody who has the math and the sensitive instruments and the other things to see something that's not random in it will trade that not random component and he will scale up his operation until the not random part 
is crushed down to just that marginal one tick above the interest rate or whatever it is. And then what he leaves behind is a market that is so random that even he can't see a non-random pattern in it. Then somebody else has a different theory. And usually the people with those theories, um, you know, trade them and make money rather than, uh, you know, complaining about it. Because um, if you make if you make money, somebody will. It doesn't think everybody picks only one person. Then why don't you ask your next question? Uh, there's one more, but I as I'm as I'm reading it here, I think it's better suited for the random fun ones at the end. So <laughs> you can go ahead and ask your next one. So I think I'm going to know the answer to this, and it's going to reference one of our gold exchange podcasts. But what can Arizonans do to support your public policy efforts on gold? And what can Americans do in general? So I think there's a couple of public policies that are important. Um, so sort of going down in descending order, uh, one, if there's a sales tax on gold, which Arizona does not have, um, write your legislators and say, this is unjust, this is obscene. And by the way, it isn't really adding any meaningful amount of revenue to the state coffers anyways. All you do is you push the bullion trade out of state. Um, secondly, if there's a capital gains tax on gold, which finally, after five years of my efforts and the efforts of a number of others, um, including some heroic legislators, I say heroic because I don't know that they really had a lot of voters that demanded it. I think they just did it because they thought it was right. And so for that, they deserve you know, credit for that yeoman's work. Um, we don't have a capital gains tax on gold and silver in Arizona either. And there's a number of other states, Utah, Oklahoma, I believe, Texas doesn't have any capital, doesn't have any income tax period. So therefore no capital gains tax period and therefore no capital gains tax on gold and silver. So if there's capital gains tax in your state, absolutely write your legislators. Again, number one, this is morally obscene. Number two, it's impractical. Number three, the revenue that it produces. So I looked at Texas, I looked at Arizona and Arizona estimated um, it might be something like $150,000 a year to the state government. I mean, truly de minimis, a rounding error that would round to zero on the state budget. And for that, you know, you're troubling the citizens with all these things. Um, in Arizona, um, I was on this, uh, as I mentioned in a previous answer, on the ad hoc committee on gold bonds. Um, I think it would be a huge acceleration to the idea of gold returning as money, not just as something, that, an asset that people trade and, and you know, goes up in price and then they, people can sell and get more dollars, but actually is useful um, if a government were to issue a gold bond. And um, state of Arizona uh, could potentially do that. There's a few other states that could potentially do that. Nevada being the biggest gold mining state producing, I think 166 tons a year the last time I had looked. Um, Utah, Idaho, Alaska, California also produces gold, but I'm gonna almost hesitate to even suggest California because if you live in California, your odds of getting California to issue a gold bond are you know, slim to none. Um, but you know, Arizona, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe the legislature would have an appetite to pick it up now. Maybe the governor would have more appetite for it than you know before. Um, and uh, you know, as soon as one state government were to issue a gold bond, I think that would open up a lot of eyes and generate a lot of news buzz. Um, when I was working with 
uh, some folks in the legislature in the state of Nevada. I'm talking with the state um, uh, controller and a couple of other folks. Even just the introduction of a, of a bill by one of the state representatives generated news buzz way out of proportion to, you know, uh, the, the, the very slim odds that that bill had at that time, which never even, never even got out of committee anyway. Um, so if people are inclined to participate as, as activists, I would encourage, uh, you know, anything that can go towards that. There are other states, I guess, that are passing legislation. Um, I think Idaho and Wyoming are among them, um, and, and perhaps Utah, that uh, legislation to either authorize or even in some cases require the state, if they have a rainy day fund, um, to hold some of that rainy day fund in gold. That's kind of cool, especially if that rainy day fund in gold could be invested you know, in a lease or bond to get a return on it versus sitting there in a vault gathering dust waiting for the price to go up so the state can make a profit by buying and selling gold. Um, then, you know, I, I, I'm all to the, in favor of those types of uh, bills as well. Right, and uh, make sure to check out our recent podcast with Stefan Gleason. We get into all of that good stuff, the Sound Money Project. All right, time for everyone's favorite B word. And no, I don't mean banking or Ben, but we're gonna get to banking later. It's time to do Bitcoin. So Keith, we know you barely looked into Bitcoin at all. You don't really write about it hardly ever, but, uh, and this is thick sarcasm. We want you to open your mind for us here. We wanna hear all about Bitcoin. Let's start with the first question. So this is from the newsletter. Your main objection to Bitcoin is that it cannot be used to finance debt. Yet debt is a huge problem for lots of people and they're working very hard to get out of it. So new businesses can be financed by the founders or by investors who buy shares in the business. So why do you think that debt is so important for civilization? You know, debt is a tool. Um, there's a lot of people that would say guns are intrinsically evil. And I think the, the correct answer to that is say, well, a gun in the hand of a bad guy is, you know, can be used to commit evil, but the gun in the hands of a good guy is, is not used to commit evil. So it's not that I say that Bitcoin can't be used to finance debt. I would, I would frame it as can't be used to finance a productive enterprise. So, you know, if you put your business manager hat on, and for people that aren't business managers, I, I realize this is a big challenge, but, but, but bear with me. You've got an opportunity, let's say, to expand and build a second factory because there's a lot of demand for whatever widget you manufacture. Um, you could sell shares if the share price is uh, at a good level at the moment, otherwise it's extremely dilutive. Um, but if you can borrow money um, and you compare the cost of borrowing the money to the effective cost of, of issuing the shares, um, there are times when the, the borrowing makes more sense. When you have a strong balance sheet, you have good assets, you have a track record of making a good steady profit, um, the borrowing is cheaper, it's the better tool for the job versus, um, versus selling equity. Um, as to the founder putting money in, when you get to any kind of scale, unless the founder is a billionaire, the founder taps out. That just isn't realistic. Um, you know, I, I can speak for myself a little bit. I think it's pretty well known that I sold a company called Diamondware to a company called Nortel. People can Google that. They did announce the size of the transaction. I did very well in that transaction personally. 
you know, my personal ability to keep funding something as it grows is is very finite. Um, but I guess there does tend there is a tendency for people to think that the founders and CEOs have more power than they do and, and are, are richer than, than they actually are. So usually that doesn't scale. Usually that founder is funding it from zero to some point, and then he taps out and then needs investors, lenders, whatever. Um, but, but, but borrowing is um, absolutely the right thing and, and the right tool in certain circumstances. And if you don't have anything to borrow, then you ultimately collapse back to the dark ages. The dark ages was a time when, yeah, the founder can just finance it out of his own personal savings. And what you find is you have subsistence villages of a couple of farm families uh, surrounding a little village where you have a blacksmith, a cobbler, and a cooper. And you know, a, a family farm or a one-man workshop uh, is about as big as you can get. Anything bigger than that requires investment, requires the ability to borrow and lend. Um, and conversely, um, the savers need income on their savings. It, it, there's a lot of things in my theories that I get why they're not obvious and therefore quite controversial. If I talk about how the interest rate is set, I get why that's controversial. People don't understand what I'm saying or misinterpreted or whatever. There's some things that I think should be pretty obvious. And one of them is that whole generations can't possibly get rich um, speculating on the price of an asset. Um, that the only way that everybody is better off, uh, not in a zero sum way, but in a positive sum way, is if productive investment is financing, or investment is, is financing an in, in increase in production. So you lend, you lend money to a company, that company uses that money to increase its production. Um, the company makes a, a profit based on that increase. The consumer is getting something more or better than he could have before which is why that company has revenue and the investor who provided that loan is getting a return on his money out of part of the, it's a share of the proceeds of the increase in production. If you say, well, we're not gonna have that anymore because debt's a problem. Sure, gun violence is a problem too. Is the answer to just say, well, from now on homeowners aren't allowed to defend their homes with a gun because there are gangbangers out there that are committing murder. You know, that businesses shouldn't have the tool of being able to borrow because you know, there's been profligate corporations and governments that have, you know, and consumers that have gotten themselves. So I wrote an article on usury. Um, and I would encourage everybody to read that. I'm not going to foreshadow what I said in it, but I make some distinctions um, about the different kinds of purposes to which debt could be put and which ones are which ones are, are usury and which ones aren't usury. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a plug for my own article and say read the article on usury on um, on, on that distinction. All right, I, I, I love it. I want to shift from our B word Bitcoin to the B word banking. Let's do it. This is uh, this one is from Michael from Facebook. Keith, I'm interested to know your thoughts. The now commonly understood concept that commercial banks create deposits using similar balance sheet operations used by central banks to issue dollars where bank deposits are promises to deliver dollars and an additional credit risk. Doesn't the fact that the great majority of deposits are created by banks in this way overpower or influence the Fed's efforts in issuing dollars and in open market operations? I'm not sure they're really at odds. I mean, it, the question kind of assumes that 
the banks are doing something in the opposite direction of the Fed. Um, and that isn't necessarily so. So yeah, it is absolutely true that a bank, um, there's, so many, there's so many mechanisms that we have in our banking world today that are sort of vestigial that don't really make a great deal of sense until you kind of look back to the antecedent, how it worked in the gold standard. So in the gold standard, a bank reserves meant the bank had gold in the vault. Um, and um, you know, today it means that the bank itself is the creditor to the Fed and the bank has a special kind of dollar which is reserves held at the Fed, which aren't really fungible in any market other than the market to other banks and a few other specially privileged uh, parties that can get Fed accounts. Um, and so based on the balance that the bank has over here, then over here, the bank can, um, you know, you know, create loans and people take the bank's uh, um, credit paper as if it were money good. Now, a lot of people say this is very perverse, but I say if you drill down into the root of it, everything that everybody calls money today, and when I say everybody, I mean even the otherwise free marketers, um, will fight vehemently. I mean, even a lot of the Austrian school economists will absolutely fight vehemently and violently to defend the idea that money means merely the medium of exchange and therefore um, you know, bank credit is, is money and the Fed credit is money and all these things are money, um, to which I have a response. And that is that I say that in every era, there's a question hanging in the air, screaming out to be asked and answered. And for whatever reason, that culture and that society wants not to ask the question and desperately fears it being, or has, has a reason why they don't want it to be answered. And in the time of Copernicus, that question was, how do you explain the retrograde motion of everything's revolving around the earth? What you see are these orbits where you know, this, this thing is going around and then reverses and then goes further and reverses and further. And there's no explanation for this. It makes no sense. As soon as you realize, and that what they didn't want to know at that time was that everything's going around the sun. And once you realize everything's going around the sun, you know, the math to even simply describe what's happening becomes much simpler and then the explanation uh, obviously you know, falls into place. The, the question in the, in the monetary area that's screaming to be answered is, okay, suppose we go back to the gold standard for a minute. You have this piece of paper that says $20 bill on it. And you go into any bank and you slide that across the counter to the teller. And then the teller pushes back a one ounce gold coin, approximately one ounce. If the word for the piece of paper is money, then what is the word for the gold coin that comes back at you? So I, I said this at an Austrian economic, an academic Austrian economics conference. Um, and I said, look, you don't, I mean, this is in Europe. So I said, look, I'm just some stupid American. You don't owe me an answer. You don't owe me anything. I'm just gonna go away. You know, at the end of the day, I'm gonna get on an airplane. I'm gonna leave you in peace. Um, however, you owe yourselves an answer and you owe yourselves an answer with intellectual rigor. Um, and, uh, um, you know, there's a real, epistemological challenge here, which is, okay, there's a concept for the piece of paper that is redeemable to promise to pay gold. If the word for that is money, then what's the other thing? And then for that matter, let's extend this now to you go to a fancy restaurant and you check your coat. You have this expensive for a coat and you check it and you get a little ticket stub that says one, two, three, four, five on it. 
If the word for the ticket stub is coat, then what is the word for the garment made of fur that protects you from the cold weather outside? Um, so we, we just have so many conceptual confusions um, you know, around all of these things. So anyways, because of that confusion, people can't really, it, it feels somehow unnatural or wrong or whatever, the bank is issuing credit because you know, it's one thing for people to say, okay, the bank issued credit, I get that, it's credit paper of some sort. But the fact that that credit paper is imbued, for, forget legally, yes, they have, the banks have a legal privilege to, um, to deem that to be money, have that be treated as money. But conceptually is what comes first. The epistemology comes first. It is believed by everybody to be money. And that's why they pass a law that declares it to be money and nobody really has beef with that law. But yeah, that's how it works that everything in the financial universe today is credit. And the only real difference between a 30-year treasury bond and a dollar bill is duration and interest rate. And so that's why there's so many debates about how do you measure the money supply? Is it M0, M1, M2, MZM, uh, true money supply, Austrian money supply, MZM, you know, money of zero maturity, all these different definitions. It's because what's the difference between this kind of credit and this kind of credit? It's like we're we're debating how many angels dance on the head of the pen. We're just, you know, shaving ever finer gradations of, of the same kind of thing. And there are no answers to that. It's all credit. And, you know, and oh, and then so, third, so it's, it's duration, it's interest rate, and who's your counterparty? So if you have a bank account, um, then your counterparty is the bank, which is an additional credit risk on top of the Fed and the, and the government, which is, you know, uh, whatever risk that it is. Of course, in our current system deemed to be risk-free. It's another pet peeve of mine. Um, that, that's called risk-free, and of course it is not free of all risks. Um, if that were a private issuer, there would be a securities regulator somewhere that said, you can't call that risk-free. Well, Keith, the, the, the next question is, I think kind of related to this kind of irredeemable and credit kind of topic that we're on, which is from Austin Jones on Twitter. Does lending increase the dollar supply, so a balance sheet expansion? And when I pay off debt with dollars, does that reduce the supply of dollars, balance sheet contraction? So is the amount of non-extinguishable debt roughly equal to the quantity of dollars? I have to think about it. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I agree with the framing necessarily. Um, I think I'll just say that that's a more complex question. Um, I, I've been I've been writing a paper on that, have written a paper on that, which is not published yet, and I, I don't think I can give an answer that is any kind of justice in you know, in this format. Congratulations to Austin Jones. You have <laughs> gotten the first deferred answer from Keith. <laughs> All right, here's, 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 a, uh, here's one about interest rates in particular. There's a, a lot of prelude here. I'm gonna kind of jump to, to the real question. So uh, yes, here we go. So higher interest rates have this potential effect where they can actually cause lenders to pull back and refuse to lend due to risk aversion or, or what other, whatever other reason. Um, and he references the September 2019 
uh, repo rumble. And then this, I'm quoting the uh, question here. This situation is precisely where the otherwise free marketers may become central bank sympathizers in the Baggett way, Walter Baggett, um, if you're familiar with that author, uh, the Walter Baggett way, which is to lend freely at high rates on good collateral. The prospect of having a lender of last resort to smooth out liquidity, to smooth out liquidity troubles and provide currency elasticity sounds reasonable. What, if anything, do you disagree with in this argument? Well, on the, on the surface, the obvious one is it's giving them the one ring on the promise that I would, I would only use it in the utmost end of high interest rates on, on good collateral. And um, if you've ever seen uh, Denethor in, in Lord of the Rings, you just don't believe a word of it. But I think there's a deeper answer, which is everything the government does is doing by force. It is a non-economic actor. And that's, in fact, how does a future not a buck? That's the whole point of having the government do it. If there was an economic reason for it, there would be an economic actor that would do it uncoerced in a free market. And in fact, before the Fed, the banks had things like clearinghouses. Um, and for that matter, they had JP Morgan who, if there was a, a crisis, would organize a bunch of bankers that would do exactly that, land at higher interest rates with good collateral. Um, so the, the promise is always and everywhere by using force just this once and in this narrow way, which will be strictly confined to statute and whatever, right? So the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 did not authorize the Fed to buy treasury bonds. It was supposed to be the lender of last resort. But lender is really kind of a misunderstanding. They were the rediscounter of real bills. And real bills are credit that isn't lending per se anyways. Um, and what they do is almost immediately begin violating the law and violating that statute and they were buying treasury bonds and Congress later in a later, secure, uh, later uh, Federal Reserve Act um, retroactively legalized what the Fed had been doing. So that's the second thing. The first is you trust them with the one ring. The second thing is they exceed their statutory authority. But the root of it is they're using force on the promise of getting a, uh, an improved outcome over what would happen with only economic actors pursuing their self-interest in a free market with nobody having the right to coerce anyone else. And the answer is if you need the coercion, what it means is there's something that's uneconomic about it, which means there's something value destructive, something distortive. Well, value destruction is one thing. You're making actually, it's, it's a negative sum game. You're actually a net impoverishing um, you know, people in the economy. Although of course the impoverishment isn't uniform. A few people get richer, everyone else gets poorer. And maybe they, maybe they get poorer by so small an amount they don't notice it per se. So everyone can say, oh, well, this was fine, it worked. Um, but that's, that is necessarily what's going on. Anytime you're messing with money, uh, the term structure, uh, the yield curve, interest rates, anything that is, is, is messing with that is also creating gross distortions to all sorts of incentives in all places in the economy. Um, and that's probably the grossest damage that's done is, is you know, incentivizing people to do that which they would, wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, and so, you think you've done good because you fixed the problem that there's um, 
you know, why are the banks short of capital? Well, so one of the ways that you're creating this distortion is by offering a moral hazard to the banks. So in a free market, the banks know that if you have a bank run, you are finished. And it's called bankruptcy and the equity holders lose everything. And so they don't want to lose everything. So it forces them to be more conservative. If you now say the government is going to play this role of lender of last resort, whatever you want to call it, you've offered a moral hazard that says, hey, play it a little faster and a little looser than you otherwise would because we got your back. And so the getting your back part uh, you know, gives the bank uh, a green light, gives them license to behave in a more unsound way than they otherwise would. And, um, you know, and the consequences of that can be enormous, much, 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 much greater than uh, any of the proponents of this would ever really, you know, really realize. When you look at the, the true cost of, of a boom and bust cycle, when you look at the true cost of the, you know, misallocation of capital, which ultimately means the destruction of that capital, you know, the, the building of things for which there isn't any real demand or there isn't a real pool of savings to finance and the abandonment of those things, half built and whatever, um, you know, the cost of that is like off the charts, um, you know, stu stupefyingly big. This is that, that classic case where in, in attempting to step in and solve a problem, all sorts of new problems are introduced and the net destruction is actually greater because of that interference than if they had just hung back and let the market take care of it. Right. That'd and, be a fair... the is, and the question is, are they fixing the problem or are they tamping down the symptoms? So the problem right. is a bank or a couple of banks got themselves into trouble. Actually, the corrective is to let them go bankrupt or let them at least suffer some losses. And instead, the 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 lender of last resort is pretending to fix a problem, but actually what they're doing is preventing a symptom from taking place, preventing the correction. And so then the, the um, underlying cause is allowed to grow. So it's kind of like, for whatever reason, you don't get any sleep one night and the next day you load up on caffeine. And so for, for some reason you don't get sleep that night and the next day you decide to load up on cocaine. I mean, how far can you take this pattern and, well, you're, all, you're just correcting the fact that the person, you're fixing a problem, which is the person is tired and unable to focus in the morning. Well, that's what you think you're doing, but actually you're doing something much, much worse than that. And you're focusing on the scene and ignoring what uh, Bastiat called the unseen. Right. And I think also, too, we were talking about that fat tail at the end for why people might want to own gold. If you fix that one problem, the symptoms of that one problem, you might actually be increasing that fat tail at the very end, which is almost imperceptible in the current moment, but in the future, very, very dangerous. Right, so you actually have a situation where one bad decision, quote unquote, forces your hand to make another bad decision and another and another and another. Mm -hmm. so I like to use the example of, suppose a bad guy is running from the cops and runs into a blind alley and then is trying to scale the wall at the end of the blind alley and he barges in on you know somebody else who then takes him as as a bad guy and shoots him so okay but he felt he had no choice because he was trying to get away from the cops but if you back up and you see well he's he's running from the cops because they didn't want to get arrested on a misdemeanor charge why was he, why was there a misdemeanor charge well because he reached into a cash register and no one was looking 
you know, scooped out a, a, a wad of bills and then was running and then they called the cops on him. Well, why was that? Well, his rent, was, his rent was late and he was about to be evicted. Why was that? Well, because he quit his job and said, I can work for, you know, blah, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, in a, in, a, in a fit of anger, he quit his job. But why was that? Well, because he made a previous irrational decision that put him in a horrible mood. So when he went to work, he was messing up. And his boss said, look, I'm sick and tired of you screwing off. You're coming in late. You have to do this. So you see, each poor decision leads to a worse circumstance, which then the person only feels that he can only just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in and compounding what had been originally a relatively small bad decision with a series of bigger and badder decisions that ultimately led to his death, getting shot by breaking into somebody's backyard or whatever. Um, anyway, it's the same thing with look at the magnitude of the problem that the Fed right now is trying to stave off, which is the end of a very, very long chain right. of bad decisions that go all the way back to 1913 and actually even older than that. Last question on money and uh, banking before we get to random fun questions. Every dollar asset on someone's balance sheet exists as a corresponding liability on someone else's. Does this mean that the dollar has no equity? That it's actually worthless? Well, in a certain sense, whoever the debtor is has equity. So they have a value of their, uh, well, they, they can have non-financial assets, right? They can have buildings and factories and um, gold, Bitcoin, you know, whatever. Um, so, so there can be positive equity, yes. However, as the interest rate keeps falling, the value of all that equity becomes increasingly inflated. I love the term, unfortunately, it was coined by an economist whom I don't care for, John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, and the term is the bezel. And the bezel is the, you know, not yet discovered, um, you know, corrupt or, or, or fraudulent part. Um, so, you know, the Fed is puffing up asset prices and people call it the wealth effect, but they generally believe it's real wealth. And I say, no, that's not real wealth any more than um, cheese whiz from a spray can is cheese. If you've ever been to Europe and had real cheese, that ain't it. Right, so they, they create this puffed up, you know, phony thing that you know puffs up the equity, or at least appears to, and then that that all the puffed up component is subject to sudden catastrophic, you know, leaks where the air air is let out. And suddenly, you know, you find out what what things are really worth. We've entered the random fun zone. We were going to fire through some of these questions. So Today is not that day. Oh wait. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, are there recordings of the lectures that you gave at the new Austrian School of Economics when you study under Fekete? In some of his lectures, I've often heard him reference a lecture from Keith, yet I can't seem to find that series. This is from Austin Jones on Twitter. Um, there may be, but if there are, I'm not sure how to trace it down. There was a guy who was recording um, a series of, of videos, I think it was on CD at the time, or maybe DVD. Um, I'm not sure what became of that or how much of that material was preserved. Um, I'm sure he sold a few at the time. Um, the master still exists. Is he still in that business? I, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. All right, Austin Jones, if you can find those, you're the man of the hour. Okay, number two, is there a single best essay or book on the need for a gold standard before your soon to be hopefully written one? 
And is there a single best resource on the history of money? A single best book on the need for the gold standard. Um, I mean, a lot of people have written about that. Um, you know, Hayek obviously talking about competitive currencies. It's pretty obvious to me that in a free market, gold wins, it always does. Um, you know, Mises um, and Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, a young Alan Greenspan wrote a, wrote a uh, it's not a book, but it's a chapter, but it's a pretty, pretty long one on, you know, gold and inflation. I forget what the title of the essay was. Very worthwhile reading. And you can see that in later years, he not forgot, but evaded more about, you know, the need for the gold standard than most people ever learn. Uh, but in a certain sense, I don't, I don't feel like those things have really done it justice, which is why I've devoted so much time and energy to looking at both the virtues of the gold standards. I wrote a five-part series called the Unadulterated Gold Standard to clear up a lot of the confusions about what was and what wasn't the gold standard, and then to talk about how it worked. It had an elegance that I'm not sure was appreciated at the time and certainly long forgotten now. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Uh, which living economist would you most like to speak with and which no longer living economist? Um, the no longer living economist would have to be Menger. And I would need a translator. I'm not aware that he spoke English and I definitely don't speak more than a few words of German. Um, living economist, I've spoken with several um, whom I respect. I'll have to give that some more thought. I've kind of made a point of reaching out and meeting people that I wanted to meet and talk to, which is how I originally discovered Fekete. It's like, I want to, I want to meet this guy. That's what I did in uh, 2009. I feel, I feel like there, I feel like within that answer is a, a silent backhand to the entire economics profession <laughs> that, that it needs it needs to it needs to improve uh, I, I know i got yeah, there, I, I definitely have my disagreements with them but i i still have respect um you know for a lot of people but i think the, the question is kind of like who do you single out as the right. you know the einstein uh as the menger or the mises of this generation and i'm, I'm struggling a little bit with that all right, just a few more questions here. Uh, here's 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 a good one. Are entrepreneurs really making a mistake at the personal level when they work on an unsustainable project in the boom part of the boom bust cycle? For example, take Joe Austrian. He might be fully aware that there's a housing bubble, fraught with moral hazard, but he makes a great earning digging sewer ditches or working construction on building all these houses if he's able to get out before the bust is there really anything wrong with that i mean I, I always try to be clear and say you know the fed forces us to play this game and you know to my answer earlier i mean reality you know the market the world works the way it does and if you want to change it you have to recognize how it is currently and so I blame the blame the the Fed for its stupid game and not the players. I don't I don't really have any blame like in the sense of wrong. Now that said, 
I think you're playing with fire because you think you can get out early. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Um, number two, it becomes very tempting to think that, um, you know, the boom is actually your own smarts and skills. Um, and it does take some smarts and skills to succeed even during a boom, don't get me wrong. But you may start to, you know, uh, uh, an old advisor of mine used the expression, sniff your own farts. Um, a little bit earthly, but still keeping it family friendly, I think. Um, and then I, I do kind of have a bit of, of an objection on kind of at a different level of, you know, somebody who wants to produce entertainment content that's nihilistic and celebrating destruction, producing video games like Grand Theft Auto. I don't really, we're selling marijuana now that it's legal. Um, it's legal, I get it. You're making money, I get it. Uh, I certainly want nothing to do with a business like that. Now, I, and I wouldn't put selling houses on the same level as selling marijuana or producing Grand Theft Auto. Um, but, you know, there are degrees of it. And to the extent that you understand, you know, the game is that, uh, is that the best place? Is that the best and highest use of your time? Do you find personal purpose in that area? And I would, I would ask questions around that. Great. Okay. Um... We're going to end with the Lord of the Rings, so I'm going to shift those to the end. What is, in your opinion, what is the most overused word in finance? And you cannot answer with money or credit. So it's one of those words when you hear it, you're like, that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. But you can't say money or credit. Can't say money or credit. Um... Risk or risk-free? Oh, I guess maybe inflation. There you go. That's probably. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Inflation. Yeah. All right. Should have seen that one coming. Yeah, I should have seen that one coming. <laughs> you've got, um, you've got only three articles or three essays that you can recommend to someone to give them the the most kind of fully orbed understanding of your body of work. Which ones do you choose? When gold backwardation becomes permanent, number one, using gold bonds to avert financial Armageddon, number two. And I'm trying to think, there's so many other good ones, but in terms of at that level of like the seminal Keith article, um, those would be the two for sure. Um, Maybe um, it, was, I'm trying to, it was something like Bitcoin and hyperdeflation because it talks about the unit of measure and this idea of a steel meter stick versus rubber bands, a lighthouse versus ships that are sinking and tossing in storms, what is used to measure what and that it's not commutative. If A is measuring B, you can't say then B measures A. It, it doesn't work that way. And I think that was a underappreciated uh, uh, idea. Awesome. We will include those in the show notes, uh, in case you're, in, in case you want to go get those articles. All right. Lord of the Rings time. There are different theories out there. I'm curious to hear you. <laughs> there are different theories out there. I'm just smiling. Theories related to Lord of the Rings. Okay. <laughs> 
what and you i'm curious to hear your theory so what is the essence of the evil power of the one ring like in what lies its evilness how would you how would you answer that i think it was in the prologue of uh, peter jackson's you know rendition of it the the first movie where kate blanchett says you know the dark lord sauron seeks the power to dominate all life and i think that's what it ultimately it was power over others, the power to compel. And what, what makes it so interesting, I mean, we talked about this on, on part one, is it's fantastical in a certain sense, but it deals with real human themes. It wasn't some otherworldly, you know, the evil is defined as something between the elves and the wizards or something like that. No, it was a very real thing. But there's some people who seek power over others, and that's the power to compel stubborn need to bend, right? And that's exactly what we see today, whether it's central banks, whether it's um, COVID, you know, lockdowns, whether it's taxes, whether it's whatever, it's always forcing somebody else to obey what you want him to do. And if he doesn't want to do that, then you pick up a gun. And um, the ring was, you know, sort of an allegory for a gun, a nuclear bomb, a tank, you know, a, a bomber jet, you know, a, whatever form of power applies in your era, the ring was that. The power to bend others to his will, I think, was, right. was is how it goes. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, uh, for those interested, I did fact check your answer on Tom Bombadil from the from the last one. <laughs> I did. I I consulted mm -hmm. the one wiki to rule them all. Uh -huh. uh, we don't have time to go into it on this episode, but for for anyone that's curious out there, Keith's answer was. The answer is unknown, but Keith's answer was the generally accepted theory for who for who Tom Bombadil is. So, um, five check, points. Mostly true. Mostly yes, true. five points to you, Keith, for that. Well, that is that is all the time we have for today. Uh, this is this concludes the second part of our AKA series. I want to thank everyone in the monetary metals community again for making this happen. We could not have done it without y'all. Thank you so much for submitting these questions. It was a lot of fun. We hope you had as much fun listening to this as we had putting it together. And um, yeah, this was our first foray into video. If you have any tips or suggestions or feedback on how we can make these videos be better, please let us know. Uh, you're welcome to like, share, subscribe, and follow us on all the major social media channels and wherever podcasts are found, as well as on our website. And I think it's only fitting that we sign off this episode with a Lord of the Rings farewell. So I am I'm gonna I am gonna send us off into the night here with uh I think this is from the Fellowship of the Ring when they send the fellowship off. So farewell and may the blessing of elves and men and all free folk go with you. So thank you everyone. We will see you again on the next episode of the Gold Exchange podcast. Thanks for checking out this Ask Keith Anything episode of the Gold Exchange Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our channel and check out monetary-metals.com for all our great content. See you next time.